Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Hebrews chapter 8 and Romans chapter 8. As we continue our study through the book of Hebrews, the title of our Bible study today is God's Will Written on Your Heart. God's Will Written on Your Heart. Why is Jesus better than Judaism? Why is he better than the Old Testament law? Why is he better than the rituals and the ceremonies and the religious system? Well, he's better or he's the best because he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He brought in the new covenant that was promised in the Old Testament. And now by faith, we live in unity with Jesus fulfilling God's righteous requirements in him. Remember, we've had this repeated over and over again. If anyone ever comes and tries to trip you up by saying, you don't keep the law, you don't worship properly, you can answer that say, no, I do keep the law. And I do, keep, I do worship properly. And they might say to you, well, you don't keep the feast. And you say, well, yes, I do keep the feast. And yes, I do keep the Ten Commandments. And yes, I do keep the law. And they say, no, that's not possible. You have failed, to which you will say, yes, I have failed. And they will tell you, but you've sinned. You can't completely keep it, to which you will say, you're right, I've sinned. And then there'll be a little bit of frustration because, well, you don't keep the law. And you will answer this way, I do keep the law by faith in Jesus Christ, his finished work. He is my mediator, he is my representative. It's his righteousness for my unrighteousness. It's his perfection for my imperfection so that no longer do I try to keep a list of rules and regulations, no longer do we need to sacrifice animals, no longer do we go through all the ceremonies or the priesthood, but now by faith in Jesus Christ, you keep the law. Don't forget that. He is your sufficiency, he's your strength. Don't let anyone trip you up with that as if Jesus isn't enough for you, as if you're not worshiping properly, as if the church that you attend isn't doing it right because you've abandoned your Jewish roots. You have not abandoned your Jewish roots. You've embraced them completely, wholeheartedly, 100% by faith in Jesus Christ. By the way, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah and by faith in him, you and I are fulfilling what the Bible has taught and predicted. Now, throughout the Bible, it's important that we recognize that God has made various covenants or agreements with man. A covenant, we don't use that word very much, but a covenant simply means an agreement. It's an agreement between two parties. You know, if you sign a contract, there's a covenant. If you shake a hand and make an agreement, that's a covenant. <laughs> One thing they didn't tell me about moving to Colorado is that when you buy a house, most likely when you drive into the neighborhood, it's gonna say the name of your neighborhood there and then on the bottom it's gonna say what? A covenant community. Why didn't anybody tell me that? What that meant? Because basically a covenant community means that you need to keep all the rules of the people that walk around with the clipboards. <laughs> the clipboards, covenant. Somewhere when you signed your documents when you bought a house, somewhere in those million documents there was one that said, I agree to keep all the rules of those that carry clipboards. It's a covenant controlled community. 
We, you know, Marie and I, we don't check the mail that often. So when we do, it usually comes in a stack on the kitchen table. And then everybody goes through and it gets all strewn. So I'm going through it. It was my turn to go through it. And there it was. I stopped on the envelope. We got a letter from our association. And so I grabbed it. Nobody opened it yet. And I looked to Marie, didn't even have a second thought. And I said, guess what, babe? We got a ticket. We got a ticket, so I'm opening up. Who knows what it might be? It could be the fence that's broken. It could be the Christmas tree that's still in our backyard. (laughs) As I'm opening up, flipping it open, taking it out, you know, we didn't get a ticket. It wasn't a ticket. I wish it was a ticket. You know what it was? A bill. That's part of the agreement. You pay us, we tell you what to do. That's it. So covenants, we don't use that word very much, but it is an agreement. And there's a little bit of disagreement on this from Bible scholars, but no need. I found the seven most important covenants in the Bible, if you want to jot them down. We're not going to look at them in depth, but if you want to look at them later, you can. But seven progressive agreements that God made with man from the very beginning. Number one, Genesis chapter three is the Adamic covenant, the agreement that God made with Adam. Then... Number two, Genesis chapter eight and nine, the Noah, Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah. Thirdly, is the Abrahamic covenant. That's the agreement that God made with who? Abraham, Genesis chapter 12 and following. Then number four is the Mosaic covenant, God's agreement with Moses, Exodus chapter 20 and others. Then there is number five, the Davidic covenant, and that's the agreement that God made with David, Then there's one, there's a general understanding, it's known, number six, as the land of Israel covenant, and that is God's agreement of what the boundaries would be of the promised land, which, by the way, are far bigger than what currently exists today. And then the final one, number seven, is what's known as the new covenant, and that's God's agreement with man through Jesus Christ. So that as we read here in Hebrews chapter eight today, finishing off the chapter, two covenants are mentioned the old covenant and the new covenant, and the old covenant is referring to the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with, Matt, with Moses in developing the religious system of the nation of Israel, the priests, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, all of that, the old covenant, which has a definite beginning and a definite ending, and then the new covenant that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 22, remember when he was, and it's really good that we had a communion today together as a church family where Jesus took the cup and said, take and drink, this is the new covenant. So the new covenant is referring to life in Jesus Christ. The old covenant in Hebrews is the Mosaic covenant. Pick up with me in verse seven now, where it speaks of if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Let's pause there for a second to establish the reality that the old covenant was necessary and important. Remember, we learned last time that just because we use the word better doesn't mean the other is worse, but rather we have this instruction of God, of the progressive revelation of God, that the new covenant is better in every way, but the old covenant served a purpose. And the old covenant was good, holy, and just. And as we'll see in a moment, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, has ended and has become obsolete. 
and has been replaced by the new covenant, but it hasn't gone away yet. You'll see that at the, at the end. Because the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was good and is good for its purpose. And that is to reveal our need for a savior. But notice he says, if the first, first covenant had been faultless, like if it had, what was the fault of the first covenant? Here's the fault. It was unable to change a person. It was unable to give a person the power to make the needed changes that it revealed. Remember, we have the same illustration. We'll repeat it over and over again. But like the mirror, it only reveals, has no power to change. Well, the Mosaic law is a mirror in our behavior. And it reveals our failures. And it reveals our need for a savior and our need for forgiveness. But in and of itself, it has no power to change. And that was its fault. But it was holy, just, and good. Now, verse 9. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the Mosaic covenant served a purpose. And most of this section of Hebrews is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah, the prophet, as he's prophesying, speaks on behalf of God of a day when a new covenant will come. And the new covenant, notice, will be a change of mind, a change of heart. It will be internal. And it will replace the old covenant. It will be the covenant God deals with his people when, once the new comes. And he says in verse 10, I'm going to put my laws in, the, in, in their mind. I'm going, to put, I'm going to be in their mind and I'm going to write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now I want to show you something. Come back to Romans chapter 8 now. Romans is often referred to as the gospel of grace. And you know when we studied Romans a few years ago... It took us over three years to finish the book as we slowly grew in our understanding of the grace of God. And there's a verse here in verse two of chapter eight that pretty much summarizes the entire book of Hebrews but specifically speaks to where we are today. Notice in verse two where it says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now he's basically saying the same thing using different words. This law of the spirit of life in Christ, what does that refer to but the new covenant, the new covenant of grace. Whereas the law of sin and death is reflective of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. You see, all the agreements that God made with man prior to the new covenant were dependent upon your success your performance. 
Basically, the covenants would say this, if you do this, then you'll live. So you'd feel really good if you did it. If you followed through and obeyed God, life would be imparted to you. But the flip side of the old covenant was, if you do this, you'll live. The other side is, if you don't do this, you will die. Someone had to die in order to appease the wrath of God. In the old system, remember, the old system of worship, when the temple was still standing, animals were sacrificed. And on the Day of Atonement, three animals were sacrificed. Remember, the priest would offer one for himself, he would offer one for the people, and there'd be that one that didn't get offered, but rather the priest with his bloody hands would place blood upon his forehead, and he would have the goat run away as fast as he could. And that way, that would represent that God would remember our sins no more as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins for us. And every time an animal was sacrificed would be a reminder of the failure of man. And they would do that year after year on the day of atonement. However, now this new law of the spirit of life in Christ, this new covenant gives us freedom from the old. It gives us freedom. We're no longer under the bondage of the law of sin and death. So what is this law of the spirit of life in Christ? Well, it's really just one word, the gospel. The law of the spirit of life in Christ is the gospel. The good news that your sins can be forgiven, that they will be wiped away, that you become a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. The new covenant is different because it is not predicated on your success and your works and your constant reminder of your sin. No, no, no. The new covenant is predicated on the finished work, just one, the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross that he took. He's the one. When you think, well, wait a minute, Ed, what happens when I fail today? Jesus took your sins, your sins upon himself in his death. Now that his death actually covers you once and for all. He's offered once and for all. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one that takes them away. We know that the law hasn't been done away with. We know that the Mosaic Covenant still exists for for the purpose of pointing us to Christ. It's no longer the way that God relates to man. We are now under this new law, the spirit of life in Jesus Christ. So what is the spirit of the law of sin and death? Well, some people refer to it as the old covenant. Some people refer to it as the Torah. Some people refer to it as maybe as the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Covenant. But in general, it is what God required before Christ. And it's been taken away. It's no longer binding by faith in Jesus. That's what it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Jot it down. It says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all, his tr- all your trespasses, having wiped out, listen, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that was contrary to us, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Remember, if you ever doubt the love of God, you ever wonder about God's love for you in particular or for this upside down world that we live in, 
We need to get back to the cross because it's on the cross where God declares for everyone forever that he loves you and that the full sacrifice, all the penalty and weight, all the wrath of God toward your sin and mine was poured upon Jesus Christ. He took it all, everything, for you and for me. It was his righteousness for our unrighteousness. It was his perfection for our imperfection. And it's true as we open up the Bible, I mean, you even come in to this building today set to worship, you turn your radio on, you watch online and you're set to worship God. It's very difficult as we turn our hearts and attention toward God not to be reminded of our own failures. That even as I come and walk into the pulpit, I come into the pulpit as an imperfect man, not a perfect man. I come into the pulpit recognizing my need for Jesus in a greater way, not a lesser way. And that's one of the difficulties because when I see my own inabilities and my insufficiencies, I can then choose to try to work really hard to make up for my deficiencies and work really hard and do more and somehow that will make me feel better. But God doesn't accept that. He reveals our weaknesses and our inadequacies so we will humble ourselves before God and acknowledge that he is our sufficiency, that it's all him, that our new relationship with God is predicated upon his promises, that he promised to put his word in our minds and put his word on our hearts. You see, all the law does is remind us that we're sinners and that we must surely die. All the law tells us is do this and live, do this and live, do this and live. But it also says, if you don't do this, you'll die. Remember that law, the Bible says it's our tutor or our schoolmaster, our teacher, and it constantly teaches us that we are in need of a great savior. The old covenant was based upon your success, your obedience, your keeping of rules and regulations, but that's the problem. We can't keep it. And Jeremiah, when he writes here in Jeremiah 31 and is quoted here in Hebrews, reminds us that there was coming a day when God is going to do the work. And that day arrived. And they have embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior and yet are so greatly tempted to leave the simplicity of the gospel and go backwards. And how many times have you been tempted to leave the simplicity of the gospel and go somewhere else? Oh, it may not be directly toward Judaism, but from where you came from, maybe back to the world or to some juicy new doctrine, you know. The Bible warns us, Paul does in another place, he says, you know, there's coming a day when men and women won't endure sound doctrine. There's coming a day where, you know, there's just gonna be this sense, he describes it as people, believers will have itching ears. You know, sometimes when you read that, you're like, yeah, yeah, you know, other people will have itching ears. Please don't ever read that ever again thinking it's talking about someone else. It's talking about you. It's talking about me. That life will become so routine in many ways that, that, that even our worship of God has such a temptation to become so routine that we'll, our ears will start itching for something new, something fresh. I mean, you think about it in the context of even this church, your church family where for the last almost 20 years, we have basically done the same thing every time we've gathered. 
We've come together, we've sung together, we study the Bible together, and then we head off into the world to make a difference. And, and you have, for some of you, you have been here from the beginning, so you've been here a long time, and, and maybe along the way you've just wondered, I wonder, you know, let's go to church this week, and we yeah, have, but you know what, it's just gonna be Ed, and he's gonna share his old dumb jokes, and you know, I didn't listen, laugh at the first time, and you know, he's gonna use the same illustrations, and you know, maybe there's something new out there. Well, well, there always is something new out there, but that's not the real question. The real question is, where does God want you to grow in his grace and knowledge? That's the real question. But you can get an itching ear, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. You know, because you gotta ask, if you do ask that question, you go, well, you know what, Ed? Uh, if I come next week, if I come next year, if the Lord tarries, what, you, what will you be doing? I will be doing the exact same thing I'm doing right now. Whether one person shows up or a thousand people show up, it makes no difference to me. I will fulfill the call of God on my life to teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, yielding myself to the best of my ability, exercising the gift of pastor teacher, working our way through the Bible so that God can use the Bible in your life by the Holy Spirit to change you. That will happen every week, week after week, month after month, year after year. And you know what? I'm not gonna have any new jokes. I'm horrible at it, but I'll tell you this, just a little word. If I get one, even a slight laugh, even if I hear a baby burp at one of my jokes, I will keep trying. I will keep trying so that we can be relatable. But do you know that my jokes don't save anyone? or my illustrations don't save anyone. They, they might help keep you together, give you an illustration where you can grasp it. For example, let me give you an illustration when it comes to the old and new covenant. When we think of the old covenant, you know, if we were to go down to the airport, which I did a couple days ago, I dropped my daughter off at the airport. If I go down to the airport and we went into the terminal and we started looking through the windows, one thing that we'd see a lot of is airplanes. We would see a lot of airplanes there on the, on the ground. A lot of them are boarding people and boarding passengers. And as they're there, their wheels are on the ground and the planes are there and they are, their wheels are on the ground because of a natural law, the law of gravity. And the reason they're not in the air is because they are now bound by the law of gravity, which makes sense. And, and it's important that the law of gravity take place so that the planes can be there, so that people can board, so the pilots and the flight attendants can get on and get everything ready. But there comes that moment, doesn't there, where the same plane that's held right now by the law of gravity, they push it back onto the runway. You know, they kind of turn it around and they go and they get on the runway. And as they pick up speed, they begin to take off and they, the planes take flight. And immediately... They are now subject to a new law, the laws of aerodynamics, the, the laws of lift and thrust. There, there's a higher law. Now, as a plane takes off into the air, subject to the laws of aerodynamics and lift and thrust, does that mean gravity doesn't exist anymore? Yes or no? Of course not. The law of gravity still exists, but the plane and the engineers and those that do such things have figured out a way to take passengers and take them up into the air, I mean, tons and tons of weight, and, and they can fly hours and hours, eventually landing once again, subjecting themselves to the law of gravity. And that happens over and over and over again. You see, there's a higher law. 
that will release that plane and its passengers from the law of gravity. And that's the way it is with Jesus Christ. The way it is with Jesus Christ is that by faith, you and I are lifted up above the gravity, if you will, of the law of sin and death. Therefore, making us free to live for Jesus in his finished work, where he does the work on the inside. You know, a lot of churches today, unfortunately, a lot of believers are only focused on the outside. Change this behavior, change that behavior, stop doing this and stop doing that. While that may be, that may be the wise thing for you to do, the real decision to make is to commit your life, repent of your sins and commit your life to Jesus Christ so that he will do the work inside. You see, we're always looking to change the outside. And you might be successful at changing the outside and still be corrupt on the inside. God does the opposite. He says, this is what I'm gonna do. I am going to put my laws in your mind. I'm gonna speak to you on the inside, in your brain, the way you think. Remember, what you believe is gonna dictate how you behave. So God goes after the mind. He renews the mind. He cleanses the mind. And he deposits in our mind the very mind of Christ. Imagine that. A radical change. Then, what does he do? He then begins to write his law on your heart. In another place, Jeremiah says that God will remove your stony heart speaking of the old covenant, and replace it with a heart of flesh. Now, of course, he's using a metaphor here. He's not talking about the pumping muscle in your body. He's talking about what the Hebrews, uh, what the Jewish people and the Greeks understood when you use the word heart, that that speaks of the sum of you, who you are. God says, I will change the sum of who you are. More than that, what God says is that in the new covenant, I will dwell in you. God, the Holy Spirit. You know, we often use a language, I'm coming to church, I'm leaving church, but you know by now this is just a building. You are the church. The Bible says that you are now the temple of the living God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And when you walk in the Spirit, when you're living in the Spirit, you're living according to the newness of life. And when you choose to act out in the flesh, speak of the flesh, think in the flesh, then you are going backwards to that heart of stone. Now, this is very, very important to me personally because when I think of my testimony, this is a big part of God's confirmation in my life. You know, when you get to those times where you just wonder, man, I don't know, Lord, and I'm wrestling right now, and, and God takes you all the way back and reminds you, you're saved. Don't forget, you're saved. Don't you forget, and everyone has a testimony and has a God story. Mine is multifaceted, but I was thinking, you know, it's hard to describe for you, and it's hard for me to even understand looking back of just how hard, my, how hard my heart was as an unbeliever. I don't know any other way to describe it other than to say I was a guy that just didn't care. I didn't care, I'd use that phrase, I don't care. Something's gonna happen, I don't care. You just hurt Marie, I don't care. You just made your son, I don't care. Your parents, I, don't, I would just live with this sense of, I just don't care, my heart was so hard. The feelings for others that I had was so insensate, I had no sense, no sense of feeling. I, I didn't care about anyone. And, and even, you know, sometimes a, a person like that, well, you, you know, you probably cared for yourself. I didn't care for myself either. The behavior that I was in was hurting everyone around me, including myself. I didn't care. 
<laughs> you know, I think about it in an in a illustrative way of just thinking, you know, the, the book by Dr. Seuss, The Grinch. Like the guy didn't care, man. He, I felt like the Grinch. Like my heart was just so hard. It was a heart of stone. I mean, even if one of your kids came and tried to sell me Girl Scout cookies, oh, you know, like I want to go on a trip, and if I, you know, if you just bought one more box, I'm not buying no box. I don't care if you go on the trip or not. That's how I was. Wow, Ed, I know. I just didn't care. And, and that evening, on a Wednesday night, when the gospel was preached to me, and an invitation was given, and I responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and God saved my soul, one thing that happened that night, that moment, is what the Bible says, that he took out my heart of stone and he put in a heart of flesh, his heart. He took out that hardness and he put in a heart. He, he began to write his law on my mind and he began to work on my heart. And you know, this is what I found. There's a progressiveness of learning how to love and care for people. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you care, not the less. <laughs> The more you learn of life's ills and difficulties, the more situations break your heart, the more that you're watching the difficult, the more, as we were speaking with Pastor Ian and Katie on Wednesday, the more your heart breaks for the orphans and the widows, the more you wanna enter in and help kids and help families and help a broken and a lost world, the less you look on the outside, the less you look on the color of the skin or the nationality or the language that's spoken, those things, those, those, are, those, those types of differences come from hard hearts because soft hearts only see souls in the shadow of the cross. And you can only grow in your love for others. And that's one of the things that I appreciate the most of all that God has done in my life. Giving me a love for my parents before they went into eternity that only grew. Giving me a love for my wife and my son and my two other children. Giving me a love for people that I'd never felt before and continuing to see that grow. That's the new covenant. The new covenant is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not you studying hard. It's not you learning some man-centered theology where you're just, now you've got it all focused and you've got, you know, if anyone ever comes to you and then says they have an answer for every question you have in the Bible, reject them. There's a lot of mystery in the Bible. God has reserved, like you cannot know everything there is to know about God. Did you know that? Because the second you do, you're as smart as God. Now there is a time promised where we will know even as we are known, but that's eternity. That's not now. And so the reality, come back to Hebrews 8. I want to show you one more thing because this is so cool. The new covenant. You have, you have been brought over the gravity of the law. It's still there and still serves a purpose. But notice come back to Hebrews 8 now, a couple things I want you to notice. When you think of that illustration, you know, by the way, as we were sharing earlier, even that illustration doesn't save anybody. It only helps you to understand that you are now free from the bondage of the law of sin and death. You're free. And notice at the end in Hebrews, at the very last verse there, it says that as he's speaking to these Hebrews being tempted to go backwards, it says in verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. It still exists, but it's obsolete. It's been replaced. That's why anyone trying to lay a trip on you to go back to the law where you're missing something, you're not worshiping properly, don't do it. The Bible says it's been made obsolete. 
you now relate to God through the new covenant. It's his work, not your work. It's his heart, not your heart. It's his mind, not your mind. He says, now that is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. But it's still there because it still serves a purpose. But one of the benefits in verse 11 of this new covenant is that he says, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for, we sh- for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. You see, God in you means that the author of the Bible lives inside of you. The author of the Bible lives his life inside of you. And that's powerful because it's really good to know the author of the book. It's really good to know the author, to be instructed by the author. It's such a blessing to know where the Holy Spirit will open up my understanding of a passage, that he is the only true teacher. Maybe I've wrestled with it. Maybe I've wrestled with the Greek or the Hebrew and I've looked at it from the human perspective and I've prayed over it, but suddenly the Holy Spirit gives you understanding and teaches you. You have the same Holy Spirit He is ready to teach you and lead you and speak to you because it is infinitely, it's good to have the book, but it's really good to have the author. Now this happened to me on a practical way just recently. I've been reading a book since really early on in my Christian walk as I was overseeing and leading in at Calvary Chapel in Downey, California. I'd actually heard this book mentioned by Pastor Skip Heitzig when I used to get weekly mailings of his cassette tape teachings. And I would listen to the teachings every week. And he had mentioned this book. And it's a great book. The title of it was Well-Intentioned Dragons. And it's a great book on how to serve and minister to people in the church. Now, they've changed the title recently. And get this. Here's the new title. How to Minister to Problem People in the Church. And you read that, you go, yeah, I need to get that. There's a lot of problem people in the church. (laughs) We're all problems. And it's a great book because he teaches us how to minister in difficult situations the very love of Jesus Christ, how not to give up on people, how how to be gracious with people. And I've been reading this book for 26 plus years. Now, it's also a tool that we use in our school ministry. So recently, they're reading this book in the school ministry, and as we were talking about it, for some reason, I said, man, it would be really nice to meet the author. I want to talk to him one day. This book has so impacted my life on how to serve in the church. And one of the brothers, he says, hey, he's in Denver. Really? Yeah, he's teaching over at Denver Seminary. And I said, well, do you know him? He says, no, I mean, I know how to talk to him. I know where he's at. I don't know him very well. I met him, and I said, well, next time you see him, tell him that I would love to meet him, that I'll buy him lunch because it'd be worth the hour and a half, and I'd just love to meet him and thank him for this book. And he says, okay, so that happened. After a couple of weeks, we met. Last week, I met him across town. We sat down, shared a meal together, and and I got to meet the author of, of a book that's really impacted me. And you know what we didn't talk about? We didn't talk about his book. We talked about life and we talked about the Lord because there's something about knowing the author and having a relationship with the author that's more important than the book. It's more important than the book. Oh, one day we'll talk about the book for sure. But it was great to get to know him, to hear his story and he hear my story, even in the short time to express appreciation for what he did, for, for what he wrote and thank you and all the time and what he learned and maybe the next time. And that, that's something important that I want you to understand when it comes to the Bible. Because the Bible sometimes in a believer's life actually replaces 
the relationship with the author. What I mean is that people have a relationship more with the book than they do with God, and that's not his intention. His intention is not for us to worship the book. We worship Jesus Christ. We have a relationship with the author. He lives inside of you. So any difficulty you have with the Bible, the author's inside of you. You can lean on him, look to him, receive from him, that he's ready to speak. But the desire, you know, as I shared before, you know, when I write one of those baby dedication books, I write a little note, I, I, I always put, God has given, uh, given you the Bible so you can get to know him better. You can get to know him better. That's why God's given you the Bible. He hasn't given you the Bible to be a theologian. He hasn't given you the Bible to figure out what everyone has ever said for the last 2,000 years. He's given you and me the Bible so that he can teach us of his great love. And so we use the Bible. We appreciate the Bible, but we love the author. He's far greater. I want to end with this, something I read from commentator, Pastor John Corson. And I think it just really hits and something for us to chew on. Let me quote. Today, sad to say, many don't understand the new covenant. Our Trinity has become God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. We've lost touch with how the Holy Spirit speaks to us moment by moment because we've replaced his voice with the written word. Many churches and organizations study the Bible and are right in their theology, but they're dead right because there's, theirs is a knowledge just for knowledge's sake. The New Testament was never intended to be an esoteric, intellectual, theological trip for people who like to fill notebooks, answer questions, and work on workbooks. That was never the intent of the New Testament writer. So what was the intent? To provide a way believers could be confirmed or corrected in what they already are living out as a result of obeying the still, small voice of the Spirit. The person who's really used by the Lord is the one who simply says, God, you're telling me moment by moment what I should do, and I'll just say yes to whatever you say. A whole lot of people have made the New Testament writings the new law, like the Pharisees, searching for jots and tittles and interesting insights they failed to see the word was simply written to nudge them along in their walk and to confirm the voice of the Lord in their heart, end quote. May it never be said of us that we have replaced the Holy Spirit with the written word. The Trinity, the God, in, God revealed in three persons is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he wants to speak to you now from the inside out confirming to you from his word the way to go and the way to live. No longer do you need to look to a priest or to a pastor or to a church or even to one another. God lives in you. You look to him and he'll lead you and guide you. And we'll say, wait a minute, Pastor Ed, if we no longer need a teacher, what are you doing up there? Well, the Bible teaches that God's gift to the church are pastors and teachers. And so this isn't a truth that takes away the significance of God's word. Remember God's word, he says, he values his word even above his own name. So it's not that this word isn't important, it is, but not more important than the author. You guys get that? The author, the Bible was intended for us to fall in love with the author. He is of preeminence. Pre it's about Jesus, which makes sense now, right? 
Paul is saying on every page, guys, why are you going backwards? You have the new covenant. You have it all. You don't need the priest or the sacrifices. Jesus died for you. He lives in you. Trust him. And I believe that's the word of the Lord for you. Remember this. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, knowledge puffs up. Another way of saying that is knowledge makes you very prideful. But it's love that builds up. And that's God's will for us, to be a community of men and women that love each other. Loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and loving one another. And that's his desire. So Father, thank you for the new covenant, for doing the work on the inside, for your faithfulness in our lives that cannot be described. We so appreciate the revelation of your direction, delivering us from outside externals of rules and regulations, but rather leading us by a simple surrender and sufficiency to you. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that right now. That right where you are, you can ask God to forgive you of your sins. You could say, God, I admit that I've sinned against you and I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe you sent Jesus Christ to live for me and die for me. And I believe he rose again from the dead to save my soul. And I repent and turn away from my sins and ask you to help me to live a life that honors you. And I know for some God, they need a new heart the hardness of their heart. And even believers sometimes, God, they harden their hearts. I pray for the marriages that have hard hearts right now because they're hurt and they're angry and they're bitter that, God, you would remove that. I pray for the relationships that are broken because of angry, anger and bitterness and deceit and lies that you would soften hearts, God that you would do a work that only you can do, that you would remind us of the freedom. We don't, we don't need to be bound by the law of sin and death, Placing a, even making the new covenant a law of itself, but rather we can, we can fly by grace. I pray for those that called upon your name today, Lord. Pour your spirit out upon them in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you...